The text I would like to call your attention to today can be found in Ruth. If you turn with me to the book of Ruth, if you're unfamiliar where that's at, it's right between Judges and 1 Samuel. If you're unfamiliar where that's at, feel free to use your index. Uh, it's a judgment-free zone because Judges, I mean, uh, Ruth can be a hard find, book to find in the Old Testament. But we're going to look at Ruth. We're going to look at chapter 1, starting in verse 6. Book of Ruth, chapter 1, starting in verse 6, picking up where we left off last week. We read, Then she, she being Naomi, then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return to the, from the country of Moab. For she had heard that the, in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she shut out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you, as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant you that you may find rest each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Go back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb, that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. And if I should say, I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait until they are grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do to me and much more, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi, when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning 
of the barley harvest. This is the word of the Lord. May he write its eternal truths on our hearts today. Corey Ten Boom was born in Holland to, the, to a watchmaker. She was, she was the daughter of a watchmaker. In fact, as a side note, she became the first woman in the Netherlands to be licensed as a watchmaker. They were faithful members of the Dutch Reformed Church, and their family sought to live out their faith by providing for those in need. So it's not surprising that when the Nazis invaded Holland, that their family hid Jewish people in their home. They hid them down in the basement. You can even read a book called The Hiding Place that details the story of how they hid these uh, people that were being persecuted by the Nazi regime. And they did this until a Nazi collaborator there in Holland sold them out. So Corey and her entire family were sent to prison, and Corey and her sister eventually ended up in a concentration camp, Ravensbrück, I believe. Many who found themselves in these Nazi concentration camps lost all hope. You can imagine. They were malnourished. They lived in horrible conditions. They had fleas in their their barracks. But not Corey. She didn't lose hope. In fact, she smuggled a Bible into the concentration camp and started to hold Bible studies. For those of us that sometimes think, well, it's raining a little too much. I don't want to go to Bible study. We should be shamed a little bit by Corey. Holding Bible studies and worship services in a Nazi concentration camp. And in God's providence, God sent fleas to their barracks, barracks 28, so that the Nazi guards didn't want to come in to find out what was going on. So they could, because of these fleas that was, were biting them and seemed like a nuisance, they could hold services pretty open. In fact, in that concentration camp, barracks 28 became known as, quote, the crazy place. Why was it known as the crazy place? Because in barracks 28, they had hope. In Barracks 28, they trusted in God and were deemed crazy. Corey's sister died 12 days before Corey was released herself. But before she died, she said to Corey, Sister, there is no pit so deep that God is not deeper still. What faith these two sisters had. That in the middle of hardship, that would break many of this, us, they trusted in God. Friends, I'm here to say this morning that you must trust God in the hard times. And I don't say this as one who is fully arrived or fully formed. You know, they often say that a preacher has to preach the sermon to himself all week and then let others listen if they want. So I don't say this to you as one who does not struggle, but I say this to you as a fellow struggler as a fellow sheep, as a fellow brother who has to look to Christ. But I say you must trust God during the hard times and ask, in what hardship are you struggling today? In what ways do you think that you've gotten a bum deal? In what ways are you struggling? Because we find in this passage two responses that teach us about trusting God in hard times. We find from Ruth's story that during hard times, we must walk in faith boldly. And during hard times, we must rest in God's sovereignty. 
During hard times, walk in faith boldly and rest in God's sovereignty. We started uh, the book of Ruth last week, and we saw that it is an Old Testament short story, likely written by Samuel during the time of the Judges, which was a turbulent time in Israel's history. Ruth teaches us that God is directing all things, that he is involved in the ordinary lives of his creation. Ruth teaches us about God's redemption and that out of Ruth's line comes the greater David, King Jesus. Ruth's story also shows us that God is gracious, that he forgives those who turn to him, and that his hesed or his covenant loyalty, his kindness, his compassion endures forever. Last week, as we saw in the first five verses, that Elimelech had taken his family from uh, the promised land to Moab. And this was not a neutral decision, that he, in effect, defected to the enemy, that he had left the people of God and he had gone to God's enemies for safety and for comfort. And he had died because of it. And his two sons, instead of taking their family back to the promised land, stayed there, and they died as well. And Naomi was left alone with her two daughters-in-laws. And what we see is that during hard times, the first thing we see, during hard times, we are to walk in faith boldly. Naomi displays great faith by returning to her homeland. Look at verse 6. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. Verse 6 is a reversal of verse 1. You remember last week, God's judgment had manifested itself in Bethlehem by famine. Bethlehem means in Hebrew a house of bread, But because of their disobedience, God had turned it into a house of crumbs. Now, God's grace and favor is on display by the return of food and the return of a harvest. And Bethlehem is once again a house of bread. God visits Bethlehem, finds them repentant, and it pleases him to bless his people. On the other hand, Naomi left Bethlehem full and she is now empty. Naomi had a husband and two sons, and she is now destitute. Naomi, although, could have done what her husband did and what her sons did, and chose to double down on her rebellion and just stay there in the pagan land of Moab, where they worship strange gods and sacrifice children and do all manner of of rebellion against God, but instead, she turns. And she turns back to God. We find a broken woman swallowing her pride and determining to turn back to the promised land. Return to the people of God. I can't read this part of the story and not think about a story that Christ told of the prodigal son. Many of you know the story. A man has two sons. And one son takes his half of the inheritance and squanders it in wild, reckless living. And then ends up feeding hogs in a far-off country, which if you're an Israelite man in the first century, that's not what you want to be doing. And he, he, he looks there and sees the hogs' food, and he wants to eat what the hogs are eating. The hogs are eating better than him, and he determines, you know what, I'm going to swallow my pride, 
and I'm going to return to my father's house because my father's servants eat better than I do. And what happens? We talked about it last week. The father sat up on the porch and said, ah, here comes that good-for-nothing son of mine. I bet he wants some more money, right? No. The father sees his son coming and runs to meet him, embraces him, blesses him. The son has a humble and contrite heart, and the father is gracious and lavishes his love on him. Friend, our heavenly father forgives those who turn to him in genuine repentance. And Ruth displayed faith in God by turning from her rebellion and returning to the people of God. Or Naomi displayed her faith. But Ruth displays her faith by choosing to stay with Naomi and turning to the one true and living God. What we see is Elimelech chooses to bail on God when things get hard. He chooses to defect to the enemy when things get hard. But we find in Ruth a bold faith, a loyalty that was lacking in Elimelech and his sons. He, she stuck with Naomi even when the future was bleak. And the future did look bleak for these two girls with Naomi. Look at verse 11. But Naomi says, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Naomi here hints at what's known as a marriage, a certain type of marriage we find in Deuteronomy 25. And in this, in this type of marriage, the brother of a deceased was required to take the widow as a wife, and he was required to support his sister-in-law and to raise up sons in his brother's name. But Naomi says, I'm past the age of childbearing. There would be no sons for Orpah and Ruth. There's no reason to stay with her. If they stay with this woman, they will have no future. Widowhood in the ancient world meant a loss of economic support. A destitute existence. Naomi declares she's as good as dead. And that these two girls would be better off to go back to their own families. They would have support in their mother's home and the, potentially could marry a Moabite man. There was no future with this destitute, barren old woman. But Ruth's commitment to stay with Naomi, friends, was no little matter. But it shows she was a woman of great faith. Look with me at verses 16 and the beginning of 17. Ruth says, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people. And your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. Ruth clings to Naomi. The word here is, is a Hebrew word, devak. And it's one of my favorite Hebrew words. Because there's two other places, if we look at where it's used in the Old Testament, it helps us understand the situation. And one is in Job, when they're talking about Leviathan, the big sea monster, right? And in Hebrew, it says that Leviathan's scales devak, or cling together so closely that no air could pass between them. And so we have this image of tight clinging, no air can get through. But the other place is where God talks about marriage. A man and woman will leave their mother and father, and they will what? They will devoc to one another. They will cling to one another. 
You see it in the New Testament as well. And so when we see in Ruth that Ruth is devout, she is clinging to Naomi, this, this, this gives us and implies this deep affection and this firm commitment she has to her mother-in-law. We find Ruth sacrificing her future to cling to an aged, hopeless old woman. She renounces her Moabite faith and family. From here on out, her family will be Israelites, and her God will be Yahweh. She abandoned all that she knew, her faith, her family, and all that is familiar. And she's not just committed to Naomi till she dies. She doesn't say, well, I'll go with you and I'll stay with you so that you have somebody until you die, and then I'll come back to where I'm from. She says, where you die, I will die. Where you die, I will be buried one day. I am that committed to you. Ruth is chips all in. She is committed, she is loyal, she's devoted, and she will end her days in Bethlehem with her mother-in-law. And to show her sincerity, she swears an oath to the one true and living God. Look with me at verse 17 at the end of the, the verse there. Ruth says, May the Lord, this Lord is Yahweh, may the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. By swearing this oath in the name of Yahweh, if you're reading in the Hebrew, that's what you would see. By swearing this oath, she is calling down a curse on herself if she fails to stay true to the commitment and the covenant she is making. In modern times, people have asked, does this, does this oath show that she is a genuine convert? Is she genuinely turning from her former religion to the one true and living God? And we must say, absolutely. Absolutely. No one in ancient times would have questioned this. This is only a question that we as moderns ask. Is this really a genuine uh, confession? Is this a genuine turning to Yahweh? But when she invokes the covenant name of Yahweh, and swears an oath, she is asserting that he is her God. By what she is saying, we see a statement of faith from this strong woman. And no ancient reader would have questioned that. Ruth serves as an example of bold faith, of a faith abandoned to God. Friends, if you do not know it already, Christianity is not for the faint of heart. But Christianity is for those who have been given a new heart. It is for those who sing with the, the hymnist, with the, the man in India who was a martyr for the faith. Though no, go, no one go with me, I still will follow. Adoniram Judson was the first Baptist missionary from America to travel to Asia. Well, actually, he left America as a congregationalist. He knew there were Baptists there. He knew he was going to have to argue about baptism so he started studying the bible and in studying the bible about baptism he became a baptist and was baptized when he got to india um, but nonetheless he is known as the first baptist missionary to asia and when adoniram asked his future and father-in-law in america to marry his daughter he had a less than desirable pitch he asked the father can you resign yourself to never see your baby girl again because she is likely going to die in some foreign land for the sake of the gospel. 
Not the, not the pitch that I think any father wants to hear, but nonetheless, they did get married and she did die. In fact, Judson would have two wives die on the mission field. He would spend time in a foreign prison for the sake of the gospel. Friends, Christianity is not for the faint of heart. We sometimes get in our mind that it's all soft songs and, and fellowship and friendship. But if you've read the New Testament, you know Christianity is hard. And as Christians, we can only walk boldly in our faith because we trust in the sovereignty of God. So the second point we see in this passage is that during hard times, rest in the sovereignty of God. When you read this text the first time, it might not be clear the first time through. But Naomi trusts in an all-powerful, sovereign God. Just let your eyes fall upon these texts. We won't take the time and go through each one of them. But in verse 8, we see, May the Lord, Naomi speaking, May the Lord deal kindly with you. Verse 9, The Lord grant that you may find rest. Verse 13, The hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Verse 21, I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. The Lord has testified against me. Friends, are, this, are these the words of an atheist? No. Are these the words of a person who believes in a weak God? Not at all. These are the words of a broken woman who believes in an all-powerful and living God. Even in her distress, she knows that God is sovereign. Robert Hubbard, a commentary says, commentator, says, Naomi's bitter complaint is cloaked in faith. Even in her distress, she knows that God's in control. She knows that there's nothing left to chance. There is nothing left to luck. Naomi acknowledges that God is in control of her fate. Naomi acknowledges God's sovereignty. Much like the story that Jesus told, when I think of this story, I think about another man in the Bible. I think about a man in Daniel 4 named Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar is a ruler in Babylon and we read in Daniel 4 that one day he's walking on the top of his palace and he's looking out upon Babylon and his heart gets proud and he says, man, look at all of this stuff I did. I'm a pretty big deal. And what does God do? God humbles him. He turns him into a lunatic. He's out in the middle of the field like eating grass and his hair grows long like eagle's feathers and people are like, this guy's in charge? And what we see in Daniel 4 is Nebuchadnezzar makes a statement when God gives him back his sanity, and I'll just read it to you here. But at the end of those days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, looked up to heaven, and my sanity returned to me. Then I praised the Most High and honored and glorified Him who lives forever. For His dominion is an everlasting dominion, and His kingdom is from generation to generation, and He does all that He wants with the army of heaven, and the inhabitants of earth. There is no one who can block his hand or say to him, what have you done? 
He goes on to say, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the King of heavens because all his works are true and all his ways are just, and he is able to humble those who walk in pride. Friends, Nebuchadnezzar had to learn the hard way that God is in control. And despite the struggles of Naomi's life, despite the struggles of your life, there is nothing out of control. Naomi affirms that God is sovereign. And with that, God sovereignly brought Naomi and Ruth to Judah during the harvest. Look with me at verse 6. The Lord has visited his people and given them food. God had restored his favor on Bethlehem. In our modern day, we do well to remember that our groceries don't ultimately come from the grocer, but from God. And these two come to town because of this restored favor. And the city starts to buzz. Imagine people scurrying about, talking. Hey, have you seen? Naomi's back. You saw Naomi. Remember Naomi? She left a few years ago. Oh, yeah, I remember Naomi. If you're ever from a small town and return unannounced, you kind of get this, right? Like when I was in the army and I would go home and not tell anybody, it sometimes would take me 45 minutes to get out of Piggly Wiggly wanting to get two things because you ran into cousins and dogs and aunts and uncles and friends and everything else. And Naomi is all the news. These two women are back in Bethlehem. And, and what do we see in verse 22? They just happen to come back during the barley festival. Look at verse 22. So Naomi returned, and Ruth, the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. One of the uh, commentators I read this week, I like the way he says it. He says, you can almost hear Samuel smile as he writes this. Like they just happened to come back at the barley festival. What a coincidence. Coincidence. They just happened to come back when the food was there. They just happened to come back when Boaz, who we'll meet next week, would be out in his fields. Just happened that way. Friends, in his sovereign will, everything in this story came about just as God had planned. We studied his sovereignty this morning during our evangelism class, right? In Acts chapter, is it 2, I think, uh, where they talk about Jesus being crucified according to the, what? It just happened to happen? No, according to the definite plan of a holy God. There's nothing crumbling. There's nothing out of kilter. Our story begins with famine and judgment, and it ends with God's merciful, lavish, sovereign grace. And as we think about this story, as we think about where we are and about God's sovereignty in hard times when we're scared, when we're afraid, I want to lay before you four things to remember about our unchanging God during the hard times. Four things that we need to remember about God when things get tough. And the first one is remember that God's grace is not limited to one ethnic group or one people. Ruth, a Moabite, 
right? Like we already read all the horrible things they were doing and all the horrible things they'd done. They hired Balaam to curse Israel. Their women tried to lure the Israelite men away from Yahweh. Uh, They're sacrificing children, all these horrible things. And God chooses one of their lot to turn to him and to be in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And you say, well, how is that encouraging? Because God has always planned to include foreigners. I doubt very seriously, and maybe you are here, but I doubt very seriously any of us are 100% Jewish here this morning. And so that means we should all be encouraged that the creator of the universe included us. Matthew 8.11 said, Jesus tells his disciples that people will come from all over to eat at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 28.19, Jesus commissions his followers to make disciples of every nation. In Revelation 7.9, we see that people from every tribe and every nation are worshiping Jesus Christ. We should be encouraged in hard times that the creator of the universe planned to redeem fallen humanity. He planned to include Ruth, and he planned to include you and me. And so when you're going through those tough times, remember that. Second, remember following God often means leaving comfort behind. Orpah went back to her family. She went back to her former gods. We understand that. We understand Orpah, but we need to emulate Ruth because Ruth abandoned all. Ruth boldly left to be a loyal member or loyal to her mother-in-law, but she ultimately left to serve God. (coughs) Sometimes we get in our minds that... As I mentioned earlier, this serving God should be easy. Well, I'll serve God if it's not too hard. I'll serve God as long as it doesn't make me look bad or crazy. I'll serve God if people like me. I'll serve God if it doesn't conflict with my social calendar or my playtime. I got things I want to do. I work hard and I will play hard and I will serve God if it doesn't conflict with any of that. I'll serve God if it doesn't compromise my career. I'll serve God if I fill in the blank. But Matthew, in Matthew 10, 37 through 9, this is what our Lord says. The one who loves a father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. The one who loves a son or a daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Anyone who finds his life will lose it. Anyone that loses his life will find, because of me, will find it. Friends, being a Christian is hard. You know, the old Marine uh, Corps uh, recruiting slogan poster with the drill sergeant in the guy's face. It says, no one promised you a rose garden. And we should do well to remember that. Because anyone that tells you something different does not understand Christianity. If you are not willing to leave comfort behind, the Bible says you are not worthy of Christ. If you are accustomed to fighting for your rights, what you deserve, what I deserve, you do not understand the cross or the one who is nailed to it for you. Christ is God in the flesh. Yet he did not fight for his rights. 
but was crucified for undeserving rebels. Christ gave up his life for our rights. Not for our rights, you know what I mean. He gave up his rights for our life, that we may live with him. Ruth left behind her family and all that was familiar. Friend, what comfort do you have a death grip on now? Or said better, what comfort has a death grip on you? What are you hiding behind to keep from being faithful to God? And what excuses are you making? In hard times, remember that being a Christ follower means leaving behind comfort. Third, remember that no matter what, God is in control. When things get sideways, when things start to crumble, the first thing we are prone to ask is, where is God in all of this? As I told you at the beginning, I'm no better. I don't stand here as a man who is fully formed. I stand here as one who had to preach this to himself all week. When things get sideways, my first thought is, oh God, I thought we were doing so good. But we have to remember that even when her world was crumbling around her, Naomi believed that God was sovereign. She said, the Lord has dealt very bitterly with me. But she never questioned who was in control. Psalm 115.3 says, our God is in in the heavens and he does all that he pleases. Matthew 10.29, aren't two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them falls to the ground without your father's consent. Ephesians 1.11 says, we were predestined according to the plan of one who works out everything in agreement with the purposes of his will. God is still in control. He didn't leave his throne. He hasn't left his throne. We're so accustomed to thinking, I am captain of my ship, that we forget this. We forget what the Bible teaches. Our culture, we are told from a young age, we can be anything we want to be. And then we scream and we, we holler about our rights and say, I am in control. I'm captain of my ship. But what did Naomi say? What did Nebuchadnezzar say? What did Job say? What did Paul say? You cannot read the Bible, friends, and think, I am captain of the ship. If these people in God's word, in God-breathed scripture, Naomi, Nebuchadnezzar, Job, Paul, they all knew that God was sovereign and in control of their fate, why would you think anything different? Why would you think that you are sovereign? Brothers, sisters, no matter what happens, no matter what we plan, God is in control. Trust that. Have faith in that. Know that he is good. He loves his children. And there's not one bird that falls to the ground without his consent. How much more are you? During the hard times, trust in God's plan. And fourth, remember that Christ loves and cares for his bride. Before he ascended, We read in Matthew 28 that Jesus said, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Always, Christ is with his bride. In Romans 8, 38 and 39, we read, For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, or things to come, nor powers, nor heights, or depths, nor anything in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus Christ. 
our Lord. Where do you struggle with Christ's love? Do you question God's love for you? Do you doubt him because of anything you're going through in this very moment? He said that he will be with his bride until the very end. Trust him in that. And I think if anybody has proved it, Christ has. Because he is fully God. He has always existed and will always exist. He was there at creation because all things were created through him. And yet he came to earth for his bride. He came to earth to be with his people, with his chosen, with those who would call him Lord. And he walked a life that we could not walk. He thirsted. He got hungry. He got tired. He went through all those things that we as creatures go through and didn't have to for you. And then was crucified for your rebellion. Was put in a tomb and after three days rose from the dead. Ascended to heaven where he's currently at advocating with the Father for you. And one day, like any good husband, he's coming back to get his bride. He's coming back for his people. Have you trusted in that today? Have you turned to him in that today? (coughs) Because maybe the reason you struggle is because you are indeed not a Christian. We will all struggle, but maybe your struggle is because you are not in union with the one who died for his bride. And friend, if that is the case, and you have eyes to see, and you know that I am a rebel, that you are a rebel, that we are all born dead in sin, and that you need Christ, turn to him. Run to him. Confess your sin. Reject, like Ruth reject, or Naomi rejecting Moab, reject your former life, and turn to Christ. Because he is your only hope. He is your only hope in this life, and he is your only hope in death. Turn to him. Believe this gospel. Do it today. Do it now. And if you have any questions, please reach out to me. Because there is no more important decision than that. Turning to Christ. And in this passage today, we have seen in Ruth's story that it teaches us about trusting God in hard times. And that as followers of Christ, we are to, in hard times, we are to walk in faith boldly and we are to rest in God's sovereignty. So friend, whatever situation you find yourself in now, press on. Keep walking. Keep fighting the good fight. Whatever hardship you are in, trust in an all-powerful, all-knowing God and know that He holds the world in His hands. You know, sometimes we just need to go back and sing songs we sang as a kid. He's got the whole world in his hands. Though I am weak, he is strong. Sometimes the kids' songs have better theology than, you know, our adult songs. Whatever the hardship you are in, know that God cares for you and that he loves you. I read a quote this week. It was a timely quote for me. In the times that I walk. It's by Robert Hubbard. 
one of the commentators, and I love it, and I share it now with you in closing. He says, when God is at work, bitter hopelessness can come at the beginning of some surprising good. In desperate straits, one might glimpse in simple food at the table and loyal friends nearby the very work of God sustaining and guiding his children until God himself dispels the darkness. You know, sometimes we think everything's got to be perfect in our world. But sometimes in God's common grace, we find the glimpse of God's love in just a table with food on it and good brothers and sisters that are loyal around us. And knowing that one day, Christ will return. And when he returns, he will finally and perfectly vanquish all evil for all time. And that we will spend eternity with him. No more tied to this body, in the, in this fallen body and the sin that we struggle with now, but having perfect wills gifted to us by him, we will spend eternity in his presence, basking in his light, where it is all joy and no more hardship. But for now, Christian, trust in God during the hard times. Father, we praise you for your word, and God, we praise you for your love and your mercy and the fact that you are all-powerful. God, grant us a new understanding this morning of, of, of your love and your sovereignty, and if there is any, any spot of our heart that seeks to grasp for your sovereignty, that wants to be in control, that wants to rip the helm from your hands and steer for a while, God, we pray that you would kill it now, that you would grant us repentance from that, God, that we would trust and love your plan, for it is good and far better than anything we could contrive. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.